from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Joel Benenson is one of my very best friends and also one of the people I admire most in politics. He has one of the most unusual stories uh, in terms of his route to being the today chief strategist and pollster for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I worked with him on the two Obama campaigns. Uh, But his life story and his passion for politics is something to behold. Joel Benenson, my old good friend. Uh, I want you are now uh, the uh, chief strategist and, and, and pollster for Hillary Clinton. We worked together on many, many things, including the Barack Obama campaigns. But I can't get into the politics before you tell your story <laughs> because it is the most unlikely route to this place of maybe anyone. Uh, I can think of. So tell folks a little bit about yourself, and uh, uh, including uh, sitting in front of your beer distributorship in in Crown Heights (laughs) with your shotgun. Well, uh, it wasn't my shotgun. I borrowed it. Okay. Um, Well, I'll try to do it quickly. I I, uh, look. I grew up in uh, in Queens, in New York City, uh, one of the outer boroughs. My mother was a single mother. My my father had died uh, when I was very young. I was eighteen months old. I was the youngest of three kids, and uh, she was a single mom in the fifties when the term didn't even exist. Right, Um, and uh, we grew up. What did your mom do? She was a bookkeeper and office manager for a couple of different kinds of companies. Uh, while she worked, she worked for an artificial Christmas tree company and then a, a jewelry company. Um, That's a tough road to hoe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Three, and three kids. Three kids. And as I say, you know, th- this was in the 50s and uh, when my when my father died. And, um, you know, there, there was a lot of difficulty. Socially, people didn't know how to deal with a single mom. Then did you invite her to the movies? Did you invite her to dinner? You know, it was a very kind of tough time and I think I was the youngest and I think my siblings um you know I've I've learned more from them about the experience because it it, you know you probably don't have a lot of memories of this stuff before the age of five you know Mm -hmm. although I do remember in school uh you know difficult moments actually I remember um People had just started taking foreign languages in school in the 60s, and I took French like a lot of people then because Jackie Kennedy was the first lady, yeah. and they were— I'm still mad at my mom for making me take French instead of Spanish <laughs> in the New York City public Well, school. you know, at that time, though, it was a very different time, and the, the immigration, uh, particularly from Puerto Rico, had just really begun— but I remember in French, you know, when they'd, they'd ask you your father's name and your mother's name, you know, saying, I don't have a father. I was, you know, eight years old and nine years old. And it it struck me as odd then emotionally. You know, I never realized that, like, nobody taught me. They didn't bother to teach me to say my father died, right, which would have been so much different. Of course, I had a father. And um, so, 
you know, it was it was reality for me. You know, that was the way I grew up. I have no memories of him, but uh, we had a strong family. But the bottom line is the only way we got to go to college is if we could go to the City University of New York. I went to Queens College because it was free. At that time, the city and state uh, had put a program largely because of children of immigrants and you know, minorities and people of color like, you know, Colin Powell went to the City University also, as you and know. progressive government. And progressive government, exactly. Um, and that was the way I got to go to college. My mom, her dream was for all three of her kids to go to college. We did. It took me longer. Yeah. It took you me liked about it 10 so years. Oh, you liked it so much you stayed for 10 years. I, huh? I did. I did. I, I started. I was supposed to graduate, and I think, in 1973, and I didn't finish until 79. I took a little hiatus there. <laughs> as, a, as a baseball fan, you'll appreciate this. So I started college in September of 69, and when I went back to finally finish my degree, they were uh, conf- they they gave me the degree. I certainly didn't go to a ceremony after all of that. But they gave me d- the degree in uh, in September of 1979, and I thought maybe I should hold out for January or February of '80 so I could yeah, say I went to college, college in, in three, three decades. decades yeah, like Carl Yastrzemski, you know, exactly, yeah. who, who uh, played baseball in three decades. But I was a theater major, and I was passionate about theater. I I loved it. But I, I I took a lot of courses in politics. I was always very active. It was the '60s and '70s. And I was in avant-garde theater and uh, had some, I, I wouldn't even call it success, but some minimal professional experience. We performed at a couple of off-Broadway theaters. I was more on the directing side. And uh, uh, in, in at the Cabiculo in La Mama and Baltimore Theater Project and uh, Lincoln Center Street Theater Festival. Uh, but there was very little money in it, and it was really hard. And, uh, you know, I was working a bunch of odd jobs. And an uncle of mine said, you know, if you want to do this, that's fine. He was an accountant, and he had a lot of these businesses. They were small businesses. They were beer distributorships where you could sell beer retail and wholesale. And he said, you know, I, I could help you get up with a couple of guys who want to put some young guys in a business with an older fellow they know and go do that for a few years, make some money while you're pursuing your theater. And I did that. So, yeah, uh, during the blackout in the in the mid-'70s, I think it was 77 or mm-hmm. 78, um, there was a night where the lights just went out. Uh, I, I remember it uh, vividly. I was uh, at that time uh, uh, sitting uh, out uh, at, a, at a girlfriend's house out in, in Long Island, and the lights went out, and I, I had two partners who lived in Brooklyn. The store was in Crown Heights, one of the most diverse communities in America at the time, uh, everything including you know a Hasidic community, right. emerging Muslim community, right, really right. diverse. Yeah. But it was also in an area, it was right around the corner from Ebbets Field where there was a lot of poverty and, and you know, uh, you could go a few blocks and it, at that point, a lot of distress. And um, my partners in Brooklyn uh, got there the first night. Uh, there were no traffic lights. They spent the night out front. Uh, the, the next, that night, there was a lot of... Just I to protect be, the store. To protect the store. Sitting in front, be a presence. And, and it was the right choice because... Um, there was a lot of looting going on, people breaking into stores, uh, you know, with the lights out and uh, all over. Uh, and then the second night, so, uh, you know, my girlfriend's uh, older brother was, uh, he, uh, he had uh, guns. He was licensed and everything. He did a lot of work as an as a, a, a accident investigator and whatnot. 
And he said, well, if you go in there, you ought to have a gun. I said, I've never had a gun in my life. What am I going to do? He showed me basically how to hold it. He said, just keep it on your lap and, you know, it'll probably be a deterrent. And me and one of my other partners sat there that night, stayed awake all night out front. You could hear the sirens around. You could hear the looting. You know, there are a lot of Republicans out there who are listening to you and saying, he's making our point. (laughs) Maybe even some Bernie Sanders supporters. Uh, And and it was, uh, you know, it was... uh, Things kind of got back to normal in, in a day or so after that. Um, but for me, I, uh, you know, I really was looking for something more to do. It was a stopgap and theater kind of faded away. And, you know, as I was starting to think about things really almost on a lark, I made up a list of things I thought I'd like to do. And, and you know, I was successful in the beer business, but I made up this list of things and I wrote down the pros and cons of each one. And, uh, uh, you know, being a sports writer covering the New York Yankees was the one I said, wow, this is what I really want to do. And I started taking some journalism classes at night. Um, because you just hadn't had enough college. <laughs> well, I figured if I wanted to be a reporter, I ought to learn something yeah. about doing yeah. it, right? Actually, I, I was presumptuous. I wanted to be a columnist. Uh, I actually wrote a few columns to see, uh, you know, if I could do this. And I sent them to a friend of mine, Roger Simon, who you know, a Chicago yes. guy. Uh, who had gone to college with my brother? He's now a, a little political, older, great right, columnist, right? Wonderful guy, former fellow, as you are at the uh, Institute of right. Politics and, at the University and, of Chicago, and it is uh, it's great. The, the people uh, I got lucky to meet people like him and Dan Balls. They mm-hmm. all went to college together, my brother. But I sent a few columns off, you know, typed them on my IBM typewriter, the Selectric, sent them out to Roger, and he was encouraging. He said, "You could do this. You have a nice flair. Go ahead." Um, and uh, so I, I pursued it and got back into political journalism and uh, was encouraged by a couple of teachers I took, uh, you know, these classes with. Uh, and boy, when I got into journalism, I loved it. You know, it was just That's great. when you and I first met. We did. I was a reporter and uh, I actually think I was uh, uh, introduced to you probably through the guy we were talking about last night, John Marino, yes, uh, who was state chair of the Democratic Party then. Yes. And would, and I was covering Mario Cuomo, and he would say, you know, a guy you should talk to is this guy David Axelrod. He's, he's done this. He was a journalist. He's gone into politics. And we struck up a friendship over the phone in the 80s. Uh, and uh, it's been an enduring friendship and partnership in, in the work we've done, which has been great. Um, but I was doing that for a while, and I'll tell you, in, in about 1993, 94, I started to think about other things to do. And uh, I felt, uh, you know, because I was coming to this later in life, I was having a higher, harder climb up, and uh, I thought, gee, I don't want to be an editor. What do I really do here? And um, at, at some point, uh, and it was right around the time— uh, I sensed George Pataki was going to run against Mario Cuomo. Yeah. And I kind of said the to governor myself, of New York. Yeah, Mario right. was the governor. You covered him. I covered him. He was the governor. And I was thinking to myself, you know, do I really want to go through another election pretending to be absolutely neutral when I think one candidate is actually much better than the other? Um, and I was thinking about this and talking with my wife, never said anything to anybody else. But really about four weeks later, I, I had... Uh, got a call out of the blue from his uh, chief of staff at the time Cuomo. saying Mario Cuomo's chief of staff asking me if I wanted to be the communications director on the campaign and that's how I got into politics and I've never regretted it I've been you know for all that tortured path to get here I have loved the things I've done I think it's a, a great 
lesson I, I think I've imparted on my kids and, and, and my wife, Lisa, who you know, her yes. father always told uh, her, uh, you know, her siblings and, and, and Lisa to, you know, do what you love. And I've been lucky. I really love being a reporter and a journalist. I really love what I yeah. do now. No, and, I feel the same way. Uh, you know, it's it's great. You uh, Your first experience, though, was a painful one because Cuomo lost. <laughs> I mean, he had been a three-term governor of New York. He was sort of a giant and in American politics, and he lost. How'd you process that? You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not well. And in fact, I remember, you know, I kept in touch with him, and, and I, I really did like him, and I liked working for him. He he was great. I remember the night he lost, we went we went downstairs in the elevator to do the concession speech, and, you know, my wife and kids were living in Albany at the time. The campaign was based in New York City. We were separated a lot, and I remember right before he went on stage, he gave my wife, Lisa, a hug, and he said, well, now you can have your boyfriend back. Mm -hmm. And it broke my heart. Um, And, you know, he died last year. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. That's why I love you, brother. He was such a giant, and uh, it was a great opportunity. Um, And about a year later, I called him one day, and we were just talking, and I said, you know, I said, boy, I still think of the things we could have done differently. I still tear it apart. Like, how long did it take you to get over this thing? You know, like, I'm still thinking about it. He said, uh, typical Mario fashion, he said, you know, um, I just uh, compartmentalize these things. I just, you can't let them occupy too much space in your mind. I have to put it aside and moved on. It took me very little time. And I'm thinking, here I am a year later still kicking myself. Do you believe that was true? In part, you know, I, I, I believe it is. I, th- I think he, um, he did have a certain, you know, intellectual discipline mm-hmm. and fortitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he, uh, he had lost before. Remember, he, he got beat by Ed Koch running for mayor right, seven, three seven, times yeah. in six weeks, yeah. right? You know, primary runoff, yeah. uh, general election. I mean, it was really uh, – so I, I believe it was true. Um, but, um, you know uh, – I hate losing. I mean, you know this about me. I'm like the <laughs> most competitive person. I've said this to clients, right? I will hate to lose more than you'll hate to lose. I just don't like losing. And so it's never easy. Obviously, when you're in this business, I've gotten a little better about dealing with it because you're going to lose. Nobody's won everything. Nobody right. goes undefeated. And um, But I still hate it every time. You got into the business in uh, – uh as a business in in 1996, right, 95, 96, you went to work with the uh, f- f- legendary Mark Penn. I did indeed. I was stunned. Uh, after Mario lost, I, I thought I wanted to be a media consultant. In fact, yeah. you were one of the people I, I talked to, and you said, yeah, you, you should go do this, pursue this, learn a little mm-hmm. bit about advertising. You, you encouraged me. You thought I'd be good at it. I got a job at an ad agency. At the time, uh, they were taking a political approach. Uh, the client was AT&T and MCI, and they were in this yeah. pitched battle. Well, I, was, for, I was in the fringes of that thing. For long-distance service. Yeah. You know, you think about that. Yeah. We're talking 20 years ago. Like, yeah. you talk to our kids, they don't even know what long-distance service is So today, they right? called you, you got on your horse and went <laughs> over. Huh? Uh, so I, I took that job, and then uh, while I was there, they were doing polling, and I, I saw this poll presentation. It wasn't done by Mark. Uh, done by this other guy who was a vice president at the firm. And I went home that night. I said to my wife, boy, that's what I want to do. I mean, having the numbers, having the data, being able to translate that into a story, that's what I really want to do. So I started talking to him about how they should hire me to help work on the Clinton campaign. And then it came to pass where Mark and I were working on a project together there. 
And I think that's when he got to know me. And when he offered me the job, I remember we were having lunch on, on 44th or 45th Street. And, and uh, I thought they were going to ask me to do corporate work because I was doing AT&T. And he asked me to work with him on the Clinton campaign. I remember I, I walked to the corner after the meet. I took the job, of course. I walked to the corner and called my wife from a pay phone. I didn't have a cell phone. 1995. And I said, I can't believe this. They want me to work on the Clinton campaign. I was ecstatic. It was one of the hardest years of my life because I had to learn the polling business at, at a very high stakes level, you know, mm-hmm. in a presidential campaign. Uh, but it was a great education. You couldn't have it better. You know, I think there's this story about Herman Melville, who um, I think he left a manuscript of either Moby Dick or Billy Budd in a desk drawer with a note, something to the effect of, you know, if anybody should find this after my death, you should let them know that because uh, he wasn't educated. He didn't like his contemporaries. He said, uh, let them know that a whaling ship was my Harvard and my Yale. Well, that Clinton campaign, working for Mark Penn at that level and learning the polling business, uh, that was my Harvard and my Yale. Although Queens College served me well, uh, that yeah. was quite a, an education. You took the uh, you took your degree, as it were, and you started your own firm. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to jump forward because I called you. You were one of the first calls I made when we were organizing the Obama Campaign because I wanted someone from outside of Washington who had good middle class sensibilities, and um, and you worked on those two campaigns and and were really an inter- integral part of uh, everything that we did. Now you're working on another presidential campaign. First of all, are you crazy <laughs> knowing what you know about what it? Uh, why did you uh, Why did you decide to saddle up again? Well, I'll tell you, uh, we're I, not kids, you know. Yeah, I know we're not. And in fact, you asked me if I'm crazy. I said, you know, when the, we flew in from Iowa the other night and got in at five in the morning, and you don't get much sleep on the plane. That's the first time where I thought, wow, this is. I forgot about these nights. Uh, <laughs> but no, I'll tell you why I did it. I didn't expect to do another one, as you know. After 2012, I really thought I wasn't going to. And I think, um, really, the 2014 midterms. Uh, were were quite a jolt in a way that uh, not not just the, the Senate and the House, but uh, I really felt that uh, given the gains that the Republicans made at the state legislative levels, at the governor's levels, if we don't hold the presidency now, uh, it'll take years, decades, in fact, for us to undo the damage that could be done here with that much control, given where the Republican Party is today. Um, and so... Uh, you know, I, I gave it some thought. I talked to some people. I talked to my wife. I talked to my kids. Uh, I, I didn't know uh, Hillary Clinton well. We had met in passing maybe once or twice uh, over the years. Uh, and, you know, she invited me in to, to talk just to have a conversation, and we did. And I think we both left thinking, uh, you know, we were we were both a little more excited about the prospect of me doing this. And I was too. I thought and still believe very strongly that, uh, she is the best person uh, to be president of the United States, the best person to uh, build on the progress that we've made in very tough times. And so uh, I decided to do it again. And I, I don't regret it at all. I you, think you, it's just as important today as it was when I rethought. You've got a, you, you have a, a very acute sense of people. Um, you've worked closely now with both uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton how do what how do they how do you compare the two how are they are they how are they similar how are they different how is the experience of working with them different yeah that's a great question um 
you know, and, we had nothing but great questions. And and I, you know, <clears throat> look, I've also had the benefit of 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 seeing uh, really for the first time in my life a president up close. When you know, being involved, you continued to poll for the continued president. to poll for the president, and and that's been very gratifying in a way that you know that wasn't my role in ninety five ninety six right. with President Clinton. So, um, you know, I think first. I guess seeing him as president, I'll do that comparison first because I think where the comparison is uh, the similarities are greatest, I think, are both of them really um, care about getting things done. And I think that, you know, when President Obama has been criticized occasionally from people in our own party, it's been, well, he shouldn't have compromised here or he gave in too quickly there, you know. I think there is an art of compromise involved in politics, you know, particularly in a country that has the divisions we are. You know, we're not going to get a whole loaf all the time. And I think, you know, it's unfortunate that the political rhetoric pushes us away from compromise and getting to points we can agree on to make progress. I think both of them have that deep commitment to getting things done that will make a difference now. Um, you know, I use the phrase a lot, you know, you can't make the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think there's a practicality to that. And people criticize you for that. But the truth is, in a country that right now is divided pretty much 50-50 along ideological lines, you know, you're never going to have a slam dunk win. You're not. You're going to have to grind it out. I think they both appreciate and understand that. But you understand, because you're. I know that this is a genuine observation you're making, but you're also in hyperspin drive right now, and this is part of the argument that's going on between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. The Sanders argument is that the system needs a kick in the ass, basically, that, uh, that you know, we've gone through a couple of decades here where people's wages have been stagnant, and there's been this greater polarity, this great polarity, this inequality, and it keeps growing, and it's been abetted by the sum of the politics of Washington, and that, you know, you, you've heard the whole rap. And there is, there is you, you, you look at numbers, but you, there are people behind those numbers. There is a real sense of anxiety in the country about this, is there not? Yeah, there is. But look, you've also heard me say this all the time. I'm a pollster, right? And I do look at the numbers. And I say, you know, first of all, you know, to win on a tough issue it's got to be a, a 65 or 70% issue in your favor. And you and I, we went through this. We went through this on issues like climate change, right? Mm-hmm. Where you know people are there, but when you get into that pitch debate, right, even on taxes, right, you have to have a big margin there because this is going to get chewed down. I respect what Senator Sanders is doing and the campaign he's running. He's he's proving he's an effective uh, campaigner, but you know he's never been under the barrage of an attack from Republicans, or really had to get things done when you're fighting and you're in the trenches every day. And you can call it hyper spin mode, but there's a reality there. If these things were easy, if a hundred percent of the American people, or even seventy percent of the American people, supported all these things when they're under attack, you'd get them done with no problem. But that isn't what happens, and that's why. Look, even President Obama, you know. If you look at the Affordable Care Act and what it took to get that done, and the fact that we couldn't even get a public, you were there, you know better than I, we couldn't get a public option in it. Not because it's not a good idea, not because it's not the better plan. I had this conversation with uh, Bernie Sanders on on this podcast. Right, but because we could not do it. If you can't get the votes to get it done, it doesn't just happen. And that's not to dismiss the energy and the enthusiasm that people have for any particular issue, Right. But 
that was a pitched battle. And what we got was coverage for 90% of Americans. And I know how you felt about that accomplishment. Yes. You know how I felt about it. And I think it's, and this isn't spin. I, I, it's, it's just not that, you shouldn't be that facile about what it takes to get some of these things done. Because if we had a majority, if people, 80% of Americans you know, turned out and voted for one candidate, well, that that would be some mandate, right? And if they swept in 80% of one party in Congress, you know, or a a filibuster-proof majority in Congress, that would be a mandate. Um, We haven't had a mandate in this country in a long time because we are divided 50-50. And that's why getting this stuff done is so hard. Uh, And and I am not in hyperspin mode on this. I've been talking about the 50-50 country for a long time, and you know it. Um, because you've heard me say it. <laughs> you're not in and, hyperspin right now. You're in hyper-defensive drive. Well, you know, here's the other thing. I've often said <laughs> to people, you know, I'm a, I'm a liberal Democrat. There's no question about it, right? But as a consultant, I've also said to Democrats, but we still need to win the middle. There are a lot of people in the middle. There are a lot of independents who consider themselves democratic-leaning independents, right, who aren't in lockstep with the Democratic Party on every issue. We got to keep those people with us to not just win elections, but to get the stuff done. It's why we were able to eke out, you know, passing Obamacare by one vote. Right. So on this question of independence, uh, in this race in New Hampshire, we're sitting in Manchester right now. Most independent state in the country. Right. And so there's a big battle for independent voters. Right now, Sanders is doing very well with these independent voters. And, you know, in, that's meaningful in, in New Hampshire because they can – these non, uh, these uh, uh, unaffiliated voters can uh, participate in any primary they choose. Right. Um, why is he doing so much better with independence? Well, uh, he's doing better with independence here for a couple of reasons, I think. Um, and and I think the the key thing to keep in mind as we have this discussion is that uh, if you go back to two thousand eight and look at the exit polls. Um, Combined total of fifty eight percent of the pe- uh, fifty forty eight percent of the people, roughly half, made up their minds in New Hampshire in the last week. Right, very volatile electorate, in yes. part because they're independent. Yes, you and I both remember. Oh that boy, do we. well. Yes, uh, we do. Yes, I, I've never stopped busting your chops about uh, your <laughs> last poll in New Hampshire that gave me false hope. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, in fairness to you, we stopped polling. We did stop polling. Thank you, fairness for yeah. fairness to me. We did. Um, Look, I, I think these independents, there are a couple of things. One is sometimes, you know, you you, you have to uh, monitor whether they're going to switch to the other side because they think one right. person's going to win. Like one of our theories after we didn't win was there were some independents who liked McCain and liked Obama and thought, well, let me get the race I want here. Let me go move to McCain. You know, not a huge number, but enough. That kind of fluidity makes it a little harder to predict. Well, here. we saw in in, uh, in 2000, uh, you know, uh, Al Gore won here because a lot of independents who supported Bill Bradley went over to vote for John McCain in the Republican primary. Exactly right. Could that happen here? Could people take a look at yours and say, hey, Bernie Sanders has this one. I'm going over where the action is. Well, it's possible. I mean, those are the kinds of things that are very hard to predict, even as close as we are to the primary now. Mm -hmm. You know, my experience polling here and watching what you talked about in 2000 is that it is harder and harder to predict. Um, Is it also true while we're on this subject that people may say, I like what Bernie has to say. I don't think he's necessarily going to be the nominee, or I'm not sure he should be the nominee, 
but she's going to win anyway. So why not throw a vote to Bernie to make a statement about the kind of principles and priorities I want for the party? Right. And I think if you're an independent and you've kind of eschewed, if you declare yourself an independent and, and eschewed the label, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he might have certain appeal there, whether it's about his policies or sending a message, right? Just on that, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to use the word symbolic in a, in a pejorative way, but on that symbolic, yeah, I mm-hmm. can send a message. Mm-hmm. You know, I can do this here. Um, those are hard variables to get at in focus groups or in polling, and especially when you come out of Iowa and you've really got seven days to campaign in that condensed period, it gets harder to figure out. Look, I, I think this is going to, um, you know, we've got ground to make up here, obviously. Uh, there's no mistake about it. Um, but, you know, if you if you saw Hillary Clinton out there yesterday— Polls have you down by 30. It's kind of like a no-lose situation Well, for you even point. that one tightened up today, but— mm-hmm. Uh, it, it may be a no-lose situation. I think the expectations everybody's been hearing here for a Landstone. long time, how big this is. Yeah, I, I, I suspect I, I'm doubtful about that, but— Well, you know, I, I, I think—I uh, I don't I don't think it'll be 30 points, that's for sure. Um, I think it'll be t- uh, tightened up. I think we had a forum last night. We have a debate tonight. The debates have been pretty good for Hillary Clinton. I think seeing the two of them on a stage together uh, tonight, I think, will be, uh, will be very good. Do you wish there had been more of them? You know, I, look, we if you remember when we had 23 debates in 2008, we were 25, bemo- but, 25 yeah. but we were bemoaning it all the way through 07 and 08, right? Um, you know, I think there's a good number. So I, think I would it, argue that those debates helped Barack I say Obama. It all the time. They helped him, not just politically, but I think they also helped us for the general because yes. we kept organizing like the long campaign, which you thought we knew at a certain point we were going to have a majority. Personally, of I think yes. the test of those debates were important for him. Yes. And I, and I, but, and, but in her case, you know, these, she's, and one of the reasons they were good for him was because she was such a good debater. Uh, so uh, I guess I'm kind of wondering why someone thought it was a good idea to limit the number of debates and stick them on like the Saturday night before Christmas. Uh, the Saturday night stuff, the weekend stuff, from my understanding, and I'm not involved in the negotiations, just, you know, was the reason why the Republicans have had more debates on weeknights is because they've had more debates on, on cable. cable. Yeah. And the networks are much less willing to bump their regular programming during the primary season for a party debate. Um, you know, so that- why not debates on cable? I speak as a CNN senior commentator. On <laughs> well, uh, we are, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, look, we, you know, we immediately said let's have more debates. She said it, you know, while we, I think they originally had six. So let me call you on this because the feeling then, was that she said it when, uh, when it became a competitive situation. The feeling before was that she didn't want them or that people who supported her didn't want them because they didn't want to give challengers a platform. I got to tell you, Hillary Clinton, you know, you brought up how well she did in the debates. Hillary Clinton uh, is very confident when it comes to debates. Yes. Uh, She uh, believes she won every debate except one against President Obama or in the Democratic field when it was bigger. Uh, You know, I think, you know, she's fine doing more debates. I think what she believed early on is let's see how this plays out. You know, let's see who's around, who isn't around. And if this is going to go long, we'll have more debates. I don't think we ever doubted we'd have more debates if this was, you know, going to keep going for a while. And I think now it's going to keep going for a while. Let me ask you a question about, I mean, I, I know her pretty well yeah. and, um, and I know she has prodigious, uh, uh, talents in terms of 
policy and, and, and her tenacity and, and all of that. Uh, I've never thought of her as a particularly great performer on the stump. Uh, and and she has the misfortune of being pinioned between the two greatest uh, kind of political talents of our time when it comes to that, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Um, how big a problem is that? She did real well in the small rooms in Iowa, not as well on the in the uh, you know in the big rally scenes. Um, do you think she gets judged uh, harshly, or uh, is this a real problem for her? No, I, I don't think it's a real problem. And, and you ask me differences between President Obama and Secretary Clinton. You know, she is, and I think the president himself said it about how smart she is and her uh, knowledge around policy. She is a true policy-driven person. Uh, does this Patty, make- Solis said on, Patty Solis Doyle said on this podcast that Hillary would rather be in a room full of people trying to figure out how to solve some complicated policy problem than she would being out there campaigning. And that, that she does it because she understands that's part of the process, but that's not her preference. That's not her favorite thing. You wouldn't say that, you know, about the other guys. I mean, you know, Obama gets the rap, but he actually really, as you know, enjoyed being out there. Bill yeah. Clinton drinks it up. Right. It, it doesn't seem like her first passion. Right. Well, you know, I think to some extent it's true. It, it, it may not be her first passion, um, but she understands that we need politics. And I think if you take what happened in Flint recently is a really good example of this, right? This situation emerges in public eye, right? You know, she doesn't jump out and say anything, make any rash statements. She sends someone to Flint from her staff, find out from the people in Flint, the mayor's people, what needs to be done that isn't being done, right? Um and then she calls for asking for federal help, and it happened within two hours. The governor hadn't bothered to ask for any federal help. That's her first place she goes to. I think when you're out on the stump, you know, she believes, she says often, you know, I have this old-fashioned idea that you have to tell people what you're going to do. Um, Which she does at length. She does at length. She believes they have to uh, buy into the policy argument, you know, and, and sometimes— uh, you know, I think I, I often, you know, have cited the Maya Angelou quote, no one will remember what you've told them, they'll remember how you made them feel, you know, mm-hmm. and I think um, people like Bill Clinton, you know, I think you talk about, like you say, she's sandwiched between these two folks who apparated, not that ne- both of them, by the way, are pretty good at policy. They too. are, they are. But, but, but they, they had the emo- that, 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 that ability to touch people emotionally that was that's I, kind of extraordinary. I think, look. As President Obama said, she is a very values-driven person and and brings her values to work with her to animate what she does. I think um, uh, she – I think if you look at her answer last night to the question posed by the rabbi, uh, you know, she is a person of deep faith. And I think if you go back and look at her, she doesn't like to talk about that easily and she – it comes up when she's asked and – um, there's a, a, a person uh, she ran into in a coffee shop one day, and he was studying something and didn't want to be bothered and said, uh, she walked over to him and introduced herself, and she said, what, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing my work. She said, what are you reading? He said, well, I'm, I'm reading my Bible. I'm reading 1 Corinthians. And she said, oh, that's my favorite passage. And she started well, to recite Donald Trump it. would say 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, yeah, right. 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 <laughs> 2 Corinthians walked into a bar. Right? <laughs> um, but she recited the passage to him, and they struck up a conversation. And 
you know, uh, it struck me when I, you know, learned more about her and started, you know, rereading some of her books. Uh, and I, I think that came out in that answer to the rabbi last night. And I think it's not the first place she goes. And I think in some of those settings you talk about when people ask her questions, particularly regular people, not journalists, not reporters, you know, not moderators at debates. When people ask her questions like that, that's when it comes out. That's when her, you know, instant place of going is that kind of connection with people. But in the political conversation, she um, she wants to make sure people know exactly what she's going to do for them. It strikes me sometimes that she lapses into political speak in a way that is uh, not helpful to her. What, and it leads to another question, which is this big thing about trustworthiness and honesty that seems to be dogging her. She lost a, by a huge number of uh, the voters who said that was the most important thing to them in Iowa, you know, and it comes up in these general election polls. Um, why is it that she has this this sort of problem here and how threatening is it to her as a candidate down the line? Well, look, this this this, this question certainly gets asked a lot uh, by reporters. And I think obviously, uh, you know, uh, some people re- bring it up. Republicans are trying to bring it up and, and batter her with this every day. They run ads on it. But let's look at a couple of things in polls. ABC Washington News recently, for example, David, asked the trust question the way everybody does it as an abstract idea. And then they asked, who do you trust more on the issues of the uh, creating jobs? Who do you trust more in health care? And I want to go to Iowa and the entrance polls because you said she lost among people who had said trust was the most important thing. We won a primary because – when people were asked, who do you trust more on the economy? She won by 10 and points. And health care. Health care. His signature issue, right. 33% yeah. said it was the most important issue. She beat him by 20 points. So you feel like she can have this deficit in the abstract but still win? If you're making the case, who can you count on to get the things done that are going to make your life better, that will improve your lives, that will uh, create more good-paying jobs um, – then I think she will win because I think, you know, it's easy to ask a question in a poll and say this is the most important thing. But if you ask people out there right now what the most important thing is to them, it's which one of these people is going to make a difference in my lives. That's where they go. You know, this is the difference between an elite conversation and down-on-the-ground conversation with uh, everyday people out there who are still, as you know, uh, struggling to get back to where they want to be, struggling to get ahead. There's no question that we're not out of the woods yet. I don't think anybody would say it, not President Obama, who's yeah. done enormous things to get us back, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, well, no, we have a long-term problem in this country, stagnant wages, median wage, same as it was in 99. Right. Um, you know, 90% of people haven't had a raise effectively in 22 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not too surprising that people are a little... Anxious it, and maybe angry. Look, and, and, and in, in all candor, she's the only person who has put out any kind of plan that would put any pressure on corporations. <laughs> That's very candid. It is. Thanks for sharing that. I'm going to share that with you. She <laughs> is the only person who has put out a plan here to deal with what's going on at the corporate level, to create disincentives for CEOs at corporations to keep pushing up bonuses into the C-suite, particularly with companies that are profitable and not share those profits with the workers who've made them. They'll lose tax breaks if they do it. They'll, they will not be able to duck those bonuses. you got to have some do you think real it under, Do you think it undercuts her, though, that um, – and, and I 
look, I've looked at that stuff and I've read all of the commentary on it and it's impressive stuff. Do you think it undercuts her that they have shared their profits with her in the form of speaking fees and campaign contributions and so on? Do you think it undercut President Obama that he he never took any speaking fees. What about what about donations? There's no doubt about Barney that. Frank no doubt and about a host that. of Democrats who then said to Wall Street or any other donor, "I'm going to take you on, and you're going to pay a price." And that's what she will do. There's no question. And you know, even this morning, there's an editorial in the Washington Post, by the way, that talks about where the next threats to the financial system are. And this is the Washington Post editorial. This isn't me. It's in the shadow banking system. And she's the one who has a plan to deal with that. But you would have preferred as her advisor, I have to believe that she didn't take these uh, fees from Wall Street firms. from Goldman uh, You know, I, I, look, David, I'm not going to go back. I think if anybody... I, mean, I shouldn't have even said because you're not... You're, you're asking a political question. If anybody thinks, if you think that taking those speaking fees, you know... Um, and any more than the, probably journalists you've had sitting at this microphone, who some of whom get speaking fees. I have fees. gotten speaking fees. You've gotten speaking fees. But I'm not gonna, running for president. Yeah, but it. But you are offering an opinion in public, and I don't think any of the speaking fees, anybody, you know, people are giving them, thinking well, they're going to Well, they mostly gave your, them to me so that I could come there and they could beat up on me. So I call it pay to flay. Well, well, that's good. Do you think they were paying you to influence you, to change your opinion? No. No. Do you think but, they but, paid but, you but, knowing but that you were But gonna, I wasn't about to run for president. But- I mean, I just look. I think it was a, a judgment if, issue. If you're if you're saying if you're saying that somebody, which is what the implication is in this campaign, that that people paid her speaking fees, which they do to many people in many realms of business, sports, former people who organizations and groups think have something to share, was going to influence her. They're dead wrong, and the proof of that, I think, is that people on Wall Street are running ads to attack her now. No, I think that's a compelling argument. There's no doubt that she's not... They're not attacking Bernie Sanders, by the way. They're attacking Hillary Clinton because they believe she's the one who's going to take them on as president of the United States. And they believe she's going to be the nominee. Right. Um, And do what she says she's going to do. Let's talk about polling because you and I have had a pet peeve. (laughs) And I know you uh, have uh, spoken about this uh, elsewhere, but I mean... I hated the public polls when I was a consultant. You and I went through a couple of presidential campaigns where they were routinely wrong, and not by a little, but in, often by a lot. And yet they get covered. They they take over the reality. You know, they become the reality of the race. Someone's way ahead. Someone's way behind. We just saw it in Iowa, uh, where uh, the uh, the polls really dictated how. The race was covered. And in fact, people are losers and winners based on that. Donald Trump was expected to win. He didn't. He, uh, Even though he did pretty well in a state that wasn't particularly hospitable to him. And so he left a loser. Marco Rubio was thought to be mired in the teens. He ended up challenging Trump for second. He leaves a winner. And it's all dictated by polling that oftentimes is now, I guess I'm not asking a question. I'm just on a rampage. But I want you to join in the rampage. I'm going to join in. As a Willingly. pollster. <laughs> tell people what's wrong with these polls. Well, look, let's start differently. Why talk about what's wrong with these polls? Why don't we talk about what's wrong with the media and the way they cover these polls? And why do they spend so much attention on polls? I asked this to a news organization once. Uh, I don't recall which one it was. I may, but I, I don't want to name them now. <laughs> and I, I said, why do you— Your candor wh- only goes so far. Well, I, I honestly can't remember. But it might have been CNN, by the way, after the last election. It Why do you have to go there? But, it, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I said, why 
do you spend money on polls? Why do you spend so much time reporting on <clears throat> polls? Why do you do them? They said, because it really helps our reporters cover the race. I said, but then yeah. why, why, do you call, why do you report the horse race? They said, well, we don't really care about the horse race. I said, really? I said, what's the headline on every press release yeah. you put out? It's the horse race because you want every other news organization to promote your right. your poll, your name, whether it's a university like Quinnipiac or CNN or the New York Times I or I agree CBS. with this, but it would be less egregious if the polls were – were accurate. Although I must okay, say, as an give... old political reporter, I kind of missed the day when you went into communities and knocked on doors and went to taverns and went to grocery stores and talked to people and got a feel for what was actually going uh, on. I really want to make this point. People ask me, what kind of people do I hire? I like hiring former journalists. It is the greatest skill. If you put your resources as a, as a, as a, uh, a media outlet into reporting, you'd learn more about the election if you put 10 reporters on the street before the Iowa caucuses than you would from the array of polls you reported on. Well, the good news for you is there are a lot of former journalists. There are, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. right? But look... I think these polls are going to be less accurate because most of them are not conducted using voter lists, but most of them are not conducted. We should explain what that means. So in most states, you have a voter file that is, is either you can purchase from uh, uh, the state or, or through freedom of information in some places you can get it. It has a range of information about voters. Uh, which party are they registered to? Not every state reports registration, but you can usually see which primaries did they mm-hmm. vote in, Democrat or Republican, date of birth, how old are they? Uh, did they vote in every off-year election? So you know a lot about their behavior politically. And, you know, there are scientific studies about, you know, let's face it, people who vote more often are more likely to vote. And so you can start with a criteria that establishes that you're going to be talking to real voters. Mm-hmm. The old way of doing it through random digit dial, where you just dial a bunch of numbers and say, how likely are you to vote? Uh, we still ask those questions when we have voter lists to affirm the data we're starting with. But we start with a pool of people like that we know are most likely voters. You know, if you're selling... More expensive that way. It is a little more expensive. Some of the... Uh, you know, scientists worry that, oh, it's not traditional ways of doing it. But like, you know, if you're doing market research for uh, a car company, you know, say Chevrolet wants to sell more Chevys to people, right? They want to know who buys cars Mm -hmm. and who buys Chevys. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd call Bernie Sanders. He's got a small Chevy. He'd be on their, he'd be on their list, right? Dial that number. Don't dial the guy who drives, you know, who doesn't drive. Um, So, you know, that's one thing. I got a Chevy, but, but it's but it's small. But it's we'll, very small. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll do this another time because yeah. we're going to run short here. But I think there's a bigger question here for the media to address. And if I have a minute, one example. Um, one university, Quinnipiac, mm-hmm. fairly, you know, uh, a frequent pollster. Yes. Their polls on Iowa reported. I don't even know if they were accurate or not. But what I've said to journalists, why do you lose your journalistic uh, 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 practices. When you get a press release that says poll, you just report on it. The only time they they'd never poll media organizations report them, I mean, even if it conflicts with their own poll they had, the day before. They had exactly, and and Quinnipiac had never polled in Iowa caucuses before. And the last time they polled in the state of Iowa was uh, Joni Ernst versus Bru- Bruce Braley, and they had the race dead even Senate on election race. day, yeah. a Senate race. She won by she nine won by points. nine, eight yeah. and a half points. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying their poll was wrong, but as a journalist, shouldn't you say, here's the track record of this organization in Iowa and make a decision whether to report it or not? I, I think that you're right, that the, the, there are two things. One is that the polls are often shoddy, but the other thing is they become sort of a crutch for reporters and for news organizations who don't want to invest in the kind of reporting that 
really should be done in these races where reporters get deep into the communities and find out what people are actually saying and thinking. Well, listen, man, we could we could talk forever, and I know we're going to, but we, we can't do That's it here. That's a good thing, yeah. But we, we can't do it here, but I so appreciate you dropping by. I wish you best of luck the rest of the way. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.